Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. My name is Barbara Brooks and I'm a Professor of History at the University of Otago. And my name is Sonia Tiernan. I'm the Eamon Cleary Professor of Irish Studies, also at the University of Otago. Together, over this series of podcasts, we want to canvas wide aspects of the past, from individual stories to national histories, from political events to emotional tides. We believe that some history is worth repeating, especially if those histories have been previously overlooked, ignored or not deemed worthy of entry into the history books. It's our great pleasure today to have Sean Brosnahan with us. Sean graduated with a Master's in History from the University of Canterbury. He's an author who's written a number of historical works, um, one on the Settlers Museum, as it used to be called, and is now called Toitu, uh, where he has been a history curator since 1988. So, Sean, it's great for us to have you here, and um, over the years you've enchanted my history students in talking about your role as a curator in the museum. And I'm interested in that role because it's, in a way, a hidden history. People go into the museum and they see the exhibitions, but not the work that went on behind them. So what do you regard as the key elements in the curator's role? Well, there's lots of different curators, of course, and lots of different museums. In our particular museum, which is a social history museum, we have a particular story to tell. And I find that the most important thing that there's two of us curators, by the way, my colleague Peter and I. Yeah. And the thing that I really take pride in is the carefulness with which we assemble historical information. You know, we look for the detail and try and get it right. We don't always get it right. We often have people correct us, but we're happy to be corrected because we want to get the detail right, but we also look for the interest because we're trying in our exhibitions to entertain and enthrall people, not just, you know, present worthy information. So we're always looking for stories that will grab people across, you know, the century, you know, because we're talking about people in our case, um, over well over 150 years now. So the experience, as you say, it's a foreign country, and we've got to try and take people back there, hook them into it. So we're looking for interest, and we're trying to assemble the story. And in our case, of course, we're working with things and with images. We're not just using words, like, you know, yeah. historians in your case, you're using words, whether spoken or written. In our case, the primary means for us to assemble stories are the things that we have in the museum collection. And um, we assemble those very carefully, and we also are, of course, responsible for collecting. So we inherit the collections of our predecessors in the role, but we also lay down the platform for our successors in the role, and we take that pretty seriously because, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to be important to people in the future, but and you also really find it difficult to know what's important now in terms of you know cultural artifacts. Mm. The winnowing effect of time is critical to those things emerging, but we act at, at this moment as the people that will make those decisions about what's happened already and decide what things will be taken into the museum to act as the basis for future storytelling. 
That is fascinating, actually. And I was fascinated as well at the curator's corner that you were doing, which gave us a bit of an insight, actually, during the lockdown that you were presenting us with different kind of artefacts in a different way. But what I want to talk about as well is that you're preparing at the moment a documentary, which is titled Journey to New Edinburgh. Um, how have you chosen the individuals whose stories that you're going to follow essentially in this documentary? So maybe if you could tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, well, the documentary is going to have a couple of different outputs, actually. So one of them will be a big overview documentary, will be a couple of hours long, that will be you know available for sale, presumably, mm. DVD or something like that, um, and which will give you a big picture overview of the story of the settlement of Otago from its very genesis through to its... Um, actualization and you know what sort of happened up to about the period of the gold rushes so all of that period that led up to Dunedin being established the settlers coming out here and pioneering here establishing the city of Dunedin or the town of Dunedin and it's you know primordial institutions so that's one big thing and that's that's one thing so to do that we've just obviously looked at the story mm-hmm. and um, gone back to the very beginnings of it where did it come from how did these ideas mix together to create the particular brew that was Otago, as opposed to Canterbury or Wellington or Auckland, all had different foundation stories. What's our foundation story? Who are the key players in it? Um, what are the big events? Where did these things happen? That's really critical because in making the documentary, it's very much geographically based. We're going to the places where the things happen. Mm-hmm. So actually, as it stands with the script we've written so far, kind of the opening scenes will be outside a jail wall in central London. You know, which is not where everyone would think the genesis of Otago would lie. But if you think about the um, theories of Edward Gibbon Wakefield, this is a Wakefield settlement, Mm. well, those theories were generated while he was stuck in jail in London. And, you know, there's a remaining wall of that jungle, which is behind the Um, old Bailey. Gate prison. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So that's where we'll be starting, you know. Mm. While he sat there doing his time for his uh, sins, um, he came out with these theories, and they were very influential, and they ultimately led to millions of people, well, thousands of people coming here. Right. So, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting geographical hook. Mm. And we're looking for those in Edinburgh and all across Scotland and England and Ireland. We go to lots of different places. But it's where the, the events of these times and the people hit the place. Mm. What was that place? You know, that, that's really an interesting part of it. So, anyway, that's, that's the one first product. But we're also going to be doing a whole range of smaller um, video clips, kind of akin to Curator's Corners in a way, that will be about individual settler stories. And which will tell, um, you know, where did they come from? What was it about where they came from that prompted them to leave that place? Mm. And why did they come here then? And what do they do here? So that sort of is the, the, the template, I suppose, into which we'll put lots and lots of different people. And the selection of those people has pretty much been driven by our existing collections. You know, um, for the most part, they will be people for whom we have. Um, artifacts or yeah. photographs or who have a really significant story Diaries. if we don't have those. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. but it, it's more likely to be um, artifacts because we're looking at these to be um, audiovisual right. um, display yeah. labels in the future because we, yeah. we use a lot of that in our museum yeah. environment now, a lot of yeah. AV stuff, and that yeah. proves very popular with people. Yeah. So when we've got a label in the future for a thing, you know, there will possibly be a, a button to select on that where you'll pop up with a story which shows you where that person came from and tells their whole life story, where they came to. And then that artefact, you'll sort of see how it fits into that. So that's another thing we're doing. Mm. And obviously that has a lot of um, potential also in Mm. social media as we go about our business releasing these things. And we'll probably be doing online logs when we're 
trampling across the countryside and, um, you know, Scotland, Ireland, England and Wales, um, sharing some of that stuff. So there's quite a bit we'll be generating, but the selection process is largely driven by stories that we know because there's so many people that we could do. And, you know, we've sort of tried to do a bit of representativeness, but we we haven't gone too scientific about that. You know, obviously we want to have as many women as we can, which is harder to do Mm. because, you know, the evidence that survives materially for... um, Women's lives is perhaps not as strong in the pioneer period. Well, you know, we got we got some, we got lots of stuff, mm. but yeah, you know, it's not there, it's not it's not even it's not even it's not a scientific yeah. representation. And we're not trying to achieve that. No. We are reflecting the strengths we already have mm. and tuning them up a bit, you know. So we're adding a bit. So it's an added extra to what we already have. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when you think of like the portrait gallery that's there, and it's it's a much more advanced version of that. Yeah. Way. Well, we're often you know we're drawing on a lot of those. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of people in the portrait gallery, but you know there are four hundred and something people in the portrait gallery, and we can't do that many. No. Um, you know, yeah. so yeah. we've already we've got a list of about a hundred. You know, and yeah. uh, I, during lockdown, I was sitting at home doing this research, which was you know possible because of all the digital sources that are available now. Right. And I was yeah. tramping all across Scotland and Ireland yeah, and England using old yeah. maps and census yeah. records. It was really quite exhilarating mm-hmm. and a good focus time to do it. Yeah. So um, you've noted that in the past the significant Otago settlers are really have been remembered in the museum for what they achieved here and often in publications too um, and that their actual roots are forgotten. So you know, one of your aims seems to be to restore those roots. So how does that change the story that Toitu itself is telling? Yeah, well, there's a real sense in which, you know, we act as if year zero was when they arrived here. You know, it's mm. natural because in the past it's been quite hard to get that sort of information. Mm. We're a long way away from those source places. It's expensive to go there. I remember, you know, throughout my early career, investing so much time and getting to understand what happened here and coming to grips with the people and learning the stories... And I was, you know, it just grew and grew. I really wanted to go and see, well, where do they come from? You know, I'd never been, I had been to Scotland, but not, you know, not with yeah. this sort of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, and been to Ireland too, but, you know, go to those places. And I finally got the chance to do that in 2012 when the Museum of Scotland, my pal there, David Forsyth, was organising a thing on the Scottish military diaspora. And they selected me to be the sort of New Zealand representative on that. And I, I went to Edinburgh to participate in a workshop. And I added on to that in my own time all sorts of, you know, dilly-dallying around looking for places. just as a, And it was, it was kind of wonderful to go to Edinburgh for a start, mm. um, but then to sort of go to a building that I knew had been where John McGlashan's office was and which was the portal through which all those pioneers had to pass, either physically or by correspondence or whatever, mm. to get out here. Mm. So I, I had this lined up before I went, wanted to go and look at this, and my very first day in Edinburgh, I first of all set up my phone and all that sort of stuff, and I got that sorted. And then I stood outside in the street. I thought, right, what was I, I was going to look for again? Migration's office. And I looked up, and I was standing outside it. <laughs> Amazing. It's in Hanover Street. Yeah. I thought, oh, wow. You know, and so I took photographs, and I just thought about that. So this is sort of a bit more of the same. And going to, we're, we're going to be travelling an awful lot and going to a lot of different places. Um, and, and all the places that people came from, because it's so disparate, and the many different mm. strands that came together to form this incipient community here, you know, both in Scotland, which is our major focus, but also mm. in England, a uh, bit in Wales, and quite a bit in Ireland as well. We're sort of folding mm. those strands in there as well. And I think that will really enlarge our sense of an understanding of who those people were mm-hmm. because they all come from yeah. somewhere else. Mm. Yeah. And what they bring from those places contributes to what they develop here. Yeah. But just, you know, the different stories of individuals and families as to why they left and why 
they took this enormous gamble mm. to come right to the opposite side of the mm. world to a place that they really didn't know much about. You know, information was coming mm. back, but mm. it was a huge gamble. Mm. What was it that mm. motivated them to do that, mm. you know? Yeah. I know? three months on them. Yeah, it is extraordinary because you think now, you know, I only moved here a, a year ago and people are saying, oh, it's such a big move. And you're saying, really? I know all about New Zealand. You can, you can see yeah. all the connections. <laughs> but do you think, is there very different reasons for moving already can you see that between maybe people from Scotland Ireland England are there different reasons that are sending them over here well there are both really different reasons and a broad commonality of the mm. fact that you know something was drawing them here was people are always looking for more opportunity that's sort of the key driver for I think for all immigrants all refugees right. you know wherever they are for some reason they feel constricted compressed blocked and yet they know that there's other place where potentially there are greater opportunities. And it's kind of that, I think, which is the, the common story of refugees mm. and immigrants everywhere in all times. But in particular, um, differences here, of course, is, is not just Scotland versus Ireland or England. It's different places in Scotland. You know, the story of people from the Highlands, people from Aberdeenshire, people from the borders. You know, there are particular things going on in each place mm. and at different times that together make up those blocks, those restrictions, those not what we want in our life and could be something better elsewhere, yeah. you know. So um, that's what we're sort of trying to tittle around with. And it is quite difficult when we're doing it reasonably fast. I can't spend days and days and weeks and weeks on one person. So I've got to mm. go in quite quickly and try and think, oh, well, how does that fit? So we, we did quite a big broad spread of the historic event. We, we're really using Tom Devine's work. You know, yeah. Tom Devine has been a right. pretty notable yeah. sort of historian. Mm. And his most recent book on... Well, he calls the lowland clearances, you know, um, which he has really taken um, pains to set out the detail of what was happening in the lowland areas of Scotland, which cleared so many people off the land in a way that was as pervasive as what was happening in the Highlands, which was much more famous, the Highland clearances. Mm. But, you know, the restructuring of um, Scottish agriculture, the, the fewer people needed to work on the land to get much more productivity, yeah. the scientific application of crop rotations and you know enclosures and machinery and all those things. Fewer people needed on the land, people were being pushed off. A lot of those people were actually wanting to live on the land. And the chance to come back to this agrarian sort of lifestyle here in Otago was very quite entrancing and, and, and worked out for so many of them. So you know, when we track down individual stories, we know they were born here, um, you know, they were handloom weavers and sort of, you know, small-scale tenant farmers but with no, t you know, security in their mm. tenancies. They end up going to Dundee and working in a big jute mill or something, you know, mm. and it's, you know, it's it's the biggest place in the world. It's all happening, but it's a pretty shitty place to live, you mm. know. Yeah. Uh, it's crowded. It's, yeah. you know, everything that's kind of unpleasant about it. And yet they come out here and they end up living, you know, out in South Otago somewhere yeah. and getting yeah. hundreds of acres that they own. Yeah. Yeah. They can pass on to their children, which they couldn't do in Scotland. Mm. Yeah. You know, those sort of stories really, you know, inflect the whole, you know, pioneer yeah. story of Otago yeah. with the human quality of aspiration and achievement, which is what we are celebrating. So it's a kind of a celebratory approach, yes. yeah. un undeniably. Mm. But that's what the museum is about too. You know, we try and touch on the dark side and the people who failed and that sort of thing. But they don't tend to feed into our museum collection. So, you know, in all cases, the winnowing effect of times and the biases inherent in the survival of material culture do predetermine that we have kind of a celebratory approach. Mm. But we do sort of push on that as we can, but within those constraints. Yeah. So um, just... 
thinking about that journey and you know that seems to me to be one of the biggest barriers the idea that you have to get on a sailing ship for three, three months when actually so many of them didn't make it and you know mm. that you might uh, die in a shipwreck yeah. terrible thought um, so I imagine you know at Toy to the the nineteenth century shipboard cabin in the museum is popular. It certainly was popular with my children. Yep. Um, so, how much of a role will the journey out play in your documentary? Well, not much to be honest, because we kind of got that covered off in, in that display in the, section. So, yeah. what you've got to remember is what we're trying to do here is um, amplify another aspect of our museum galleries. Right. So, you know, we tell stories in different galleries in yeah. different ways yeah. and this particular um, project is very much focused on the New Edinburgh um, right. gallery which is yeah. you know like after our um, Encounters gallery and our Mana Whenua gallery that's kind of the next one you encounter okay. and it yeah. works with the portrait gallery and the shipboard um, display as well yeah. so we've kind of got that covered to a large extent there so yeah. in terms of the documentary we won't be focusing much about shipboard life itself we will be focusing on the epic story of the first two ships, the John right. McCuff and the Philip Lamb, because, you know, they had a hell of a time getting here right. because they happened to hit one of the worst um, bouts of weather. Oh, my goodness. And they were pinned up yeah. against the British coast and the Irish coast for a month right. after oh. they set sail. You know, yeah, kept yeah. setting sail and then pushed back. Oh, no. Setting sail being pushed back. A month, you know. Imagine being yeah. stuck oh, no. in all the vomit and you know yeah, yeah. congestion for a month <laughs> before you finally break away and they get yeah. out here. So we sort of focus on that. So we're going to go to Milford Haven, for instance, you know, and um, touch on some of the incidents. You know, like Captain Carter almost getting arrested for a debt for something. You know, da da da. da. Some pretty interesting yeah. sort of little stories. But we're not going to be focusing so much on what life was like on board the ship because yeah. we cover that elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. I just want to follow up as well, which you touched on, because obviously some people, and there are, you can see the absolute extraordinary opportunities that there are for people moving and they come here. But what about the ones who are actually sorry that they left and it doesn't work out? Do you, Are you going to address any of these kind of stories of failures as well, not just the celebration? Yeah, to a little bit. You know, it's not going to be a major focus because, mm. you know, we are focusing on the ones who prospered and had what it took. But we will be touching on some of those failures, um, and we have, you know, uh, we have talking heads that we draw on these, you know, experts that we're going to be interviewing. And one of them is going to be Angela McCarthy, who of course has done a lot of work on um, mental illness and mm-hmm. among immigrants and that mm. sort of thing, and crime. So she's going to be our talking head to sort of put a little mm. dib in there. And some of our stories, of course, do touch on that. Um, for instance, there's there's Minnie Dean. We're going to talk about Minnie Dean, right. you know, and that's a sort of a classic tale of you know things not quite working out, you know, when you end up on the end of a rope. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are other people though. Like, there's, a, there's a woman called Mary Desmond, who is one of the first of the Irish Catholic immigrants to come here um, before the gold rushes. You know, when that was really hard to get in here because it was an exclusive settlement. You know, one bunch of people they did not want to include was Irish yeah. Catholics. So yeah. the few that did begin to push through, you know, it was quite. Circuitous and clever. Now, Mary Desmond came here with um, a wealthy Anglo-Irish family who were welcomed with you know open arms. She was their servant. Came from Waterford. She lived down the road from where the big house was, and she obviously had been a servant there. Right. So she gets, she gets to come out here. 
Now, the family that she comes with, the Musgraves, they don't actually stay here for that long. They are, but they're in, you know, they're, they're immediately appointed to be justice of the peace and resident. Mm-hmm. Med- you know, they're in the swim with Jim. But then they decide they don't really like it here. They go to Argentina. Then ultimately they go to Canada, and their big cheese is in Canada. You know, the name mm. is still there. Anyway, but she stays. She marries a um, English guy, and then her brother and her sister both come out as well. The sister dies almost immediately in childbirth, and I think Mary probably brings that child up. She never has any children herself. And her brother comes out, and he goes off the rails. He suffers from mental illness, um, mm-hmm. and he is arrested in Invercargill for vagrancy with these sort of delusional, paranoid fantasies, and that it's his political opinions that are stopping him. He's a teacher, I think, can't get work and this sort of thing. And he gets put into the um, asylum, and he spends the rest of his life there. And yet those three are all buried together in the same grave. You know, and Mary lived at Waikawaiti, um, had a little dairy there, had a prosperous little life, probably right. brought up those children. And that's kind of the complexity of, you know, it didn't yeah. work out for everybody. Yeah, so that's yeah. one case in which yeah. we are doing a kind of a family nexus there. So just uh, on this point, we just did an interview uh, with Peter Burke, and he said his father migrated and... His twin brother didn't, yeah. and his twin brother became a millionaire in Ireland. In Ireland, oh, okay. yeah. So, and this was a counterfactual put to me right. about uh, you know, imagine if my parents yeah. hadn't migrated. You know, my brother hypothesised I might have ended up being a professor at Trinity, which seemed unlikely to me. But, right. but <laughs> you know, uh, it would be quite interesting in this story if there were people in the same family, you know, how it worked out, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm sure it's very difficult to get to, but... Well, I mean, there are lots of families, of course, where different members of the family immigrated to different places. Yeah. Mm. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Many, many yeah, no, that's Some so interesting Canada, about Argentina yeah. and Canada. Yeah, Argentina, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You, know. Um, you know, so people went for what was the right fit for them. Um, yeah. And then, of course, families lose track of each other. Mm. Yeah. So I know that my great-great-grandfather who came here yeah. and prospered in Central Otago as a gold miner before he was accidentally killed in his own mine, and his wife was left with 12 children and became a hotel keeper Ooh. and built a lot of the hotels on the Central Otago Rail Trail. She did well. Yeah. yeah. He had a brother in Sydney, another one in South Africa, and we didn't know anything about them until a, um, a, you know, a distant relation in Sydney has been doing some tremendous genealogical research and yeah. putting that all together, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And lots of families have the same. There's far-flung strands. Yeah. People tried yeah. it here, tried it there. Yeah. But, of course, that was a major um, pull factor for people mm. coming here in the early period particularly was yeah. that people were here already and they could give you the solid information about what it was like in Otago, yeah. what it was like on the ship, what you had to do to cope with, you know, the three months and yeah. you know, the poor food mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and when you were oh, you have someone to support you. So that chain migration is yeah. a very important element mm. uh, and we'll be touching on aspects of that, particularly the Irish thing because, you know, the early Irish people here were mainly from Galway and there's a very strong migration chain they established. But there's also a little one from Waterford which we sort of think um, mm. Mary Desmond might have been sort of, you know, obviously with her brother and sister coming yes. out, you yeah. know. So those things are really important, those, those family connections across time and space, Yeah. So if if you had to sum up what was distinctive about the Dunedin settlement story, what what would you say? Well, its 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 core element of being Scottish, and the centrality of Presbyterianism, right? Because that creates a particular character to the settlement from the get go. Even though it was contested right from the beginning, you know the whole thing of the little enemy, the English yeah. and the Anglicans who perforce yeah. had to be accepted on the John Wycliffe. So it was right from the beginning. There was a serpent in the garden, you know, yeah. um, and so that that really does lead to all sorts of you know sectarian bitterness and fighting and wrangling in the early settlement. But ultimately, 
the numbers tell. Scots are the predominant group. Presbyterian is the central element, you know, in the education system and obviously with the religious element. So that gives a core identity to the pioneer settlement that we then have all these other strands fold into. And I, I, Dave Cole, you know, when he was me, he used to go on all the time about the Dunedin Tartan being made up of the strands of all these different peoples, you know, and you've got right. the Lebanese one and the mm, Chinese mm, one and mm. new ones coming, the Syrians coming mm. in, enriches it all, but it does it all around this really strong pole of identity, which mm. is Scottishness, which is Presbyterianism. Right. And I'm an outsider to that, of course, because I have no Scottish ancestors. Mm. I'm Irish Catholic. Good Irish stuff. To the max. <laughs> one little strand of English, you know, one of my mm. great-great-grandparents. But I love Scots, and I love this element of Dunedin. You know, I mm. lived in Christchurch. I went mm. to university there. Can't stand the place. <laughs> it's my hometown. Well, I, I spent six years of my life there. It never grabbed me. But Dunedin, yeah. I love it. Right. And I think a lot of what I love about it is its Scottishness. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I've sort of come to terms with the Presbyterians, who, you know, <laughs> when I was a kid growing up, Presbyterians, well, I don't know about them, but, you know, I really like Presbyterianism, you know, and Presbyterians and the whole sort of their whole ethos. I really like it about Otago. I admire it. And I think it's got a lot, you know, I, I find it a bit sad how most of the Presbyterian descendants went, you know, they reject it now, you know, it's sort of thrown over. They got no sense of pride in it. But there's a lot to be proud of. Well, in those Presbyterian yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. you know, the yeah. democracy of it yeah. and, you know, all yeah. those sort of characteristics that yeah. come out of the Presbyterian emphasis on, you know, the, the, the – well, just all those good things about yeah, Presbyterianism. Yes, I'm not yeah. going to do an ad for Presbyterianism. <laughs> come, come to my church. Oh, well, thank you very much, Sean. You've given us great insight into the the task, really, of bringing stories alive very at, at the museum. And uh, they are, you know, I, I think that so much work goes on behind the scenes to create uh, exhibitions that are so popular with the public, and we've seen that, haven't we, since uh, sort of reorganisation of Toy 2 in yeah. the past decade, I suppose. Well, And likewise, yeah. our documentary projects, because this is yeah. not the first one we've done, this is yeah. our fourth project, yeah. Yeah. and we find that it's a really effective storytelling mechanism that does work in well with the museum environment and yeah. has proved popular with our war stories, yeah. our Chinese one, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and other ones we've been doing as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, So it's certainly history worth repeating. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Okay. ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.